Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Alright, let's get started. Hello and welcome to episode 4-420, 420 of the Run Run Live podcast. It is the week of Thanksgiving up here in New England. We haven't gotten any snow yet at my house. The trails are very runnable. Ollie the Collie and I are getting out two or three times a week. He's still a menace. I won't be able to get away with the, oh, sorry, he's just a puppy, line much longer. So he'll he'll knock out 8 to 10 miles easy with me on the trails. And I like to let him off leash so he can burn some energy, but it takes about four and a half miles for him to settle down. Up until that point, he's sprinting. He's sprinting up and down the trail. It's a challenge because he has no manners and won't come when he's called and just loves to meet and greet people we run into. And he's got this other gear now. And when he goes, I can't catch him. So I've started referring to him as the monochrome menace. But he's a good runner, and he minds well when he's on the leash. We just knocked out eight miles on the rail trail on leash, and that uh, that was good. That calmed him down a little. He'll be a good partner, but I'm going to have to break him like a wild stallion. He'll be my Bucephalus. Uh, editor's note, all classical references will be linked to Wikipedia in the show notes. Today, we have a good show for you. Yeah, you. You. You know who you are. But first, an advertisement, because it's Black Friday, or Ollie would say it's Black and White Friday. For a new cologne that we've come up with, we're producing for the holidays, it's called Run Run Live. And it's a pleasing scent a combination of sweat and dog ass. You can buy yours today at the Run Run Live store. Comes in a 16-ounce pop-top tall boy. Today we chat with Brian Metzler about his new book, Kicksology, which is all about the evolution and lore of the running shoe. And Brian is a veteran running journalist. Chances are you've read something that Brian has created or at least touched. He's been a frequent contributor and has started or edited a few of your favorite running publications. So, good guy. 
What I liked about the book was that it was a trip down memory lane for me. We love our shoes. We have this irrational passion for a good pair of shoes. And Brian does a good job of tapping into that. So it's a good story. In section one, we're going to talk about breathing. (laughs) In section two, we're going to talk about memory and redemption. Yeah. Since we last talked, you and I, I went in for my annual checkup. And apparently I'm still healthy. Hmm. I've been working hard on overeating and drinking too much beer for a couple of months now. And I'm up 8 to 10 pounds, but, you know, I guess it's just part of my natural, my natural seasonal cycle. I can already feel that tug of the pendulum pulling me back in the other direction to do something, something epic. And I have some good news for you men. They have determined that the manual test for prostate problems has no efficacy. No more fingers up the poop chute, gentlemen. And my doctor, he was sanguine. He was reflective. He said all of the hundreds, hundreds of these tests that he's done over the years, he only ever found six anomalies, and none of those turned out to be actual problems. So it turns out you can't tell by doing that, so they stopped doing it. And thanks again to Peter for reading that piriformis bit into audio last episode. I got some great feedback on that. That was fun to do. And I told you I've been trying to make November the month of gratitude because I have so much to be thankful for. I've been trying to get my morning routine in line by meditating a bit. And I'd like to share a technique that I learned that might help you in this season of Thanksgiving. And this is apropos, given that we... We'll be talking about breathing next. So here's the technique. And you can do this while you're meditating, while you're running, while you're sitting in the car. It doesn't matter. What you want to do is you want to inhale gratitude. Hold it a little bit and then exhale that gratitude out into the world. Give it away. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. On breathing and running. Have you ever thought about breathing when you're out on a run? Breathing seems pretty straightforward, but it's very important. If you don't believe me, try running without breathing. We always talk about heart rate and its impact on training and racing and fitness, but we seldom talk about breathing. Unless, of course, we are telling a grueling training or racing story where we end up gasping for breath like a fish yanked out of water. That sounds like one of the stories I'd tell. Like I said above, even though we don't talk about it, breathing is quite important. Without breathing, we really won't get too far. Jack Daniels has done a lot of writing on proper breathing cadences. He even had his runners at one point change their breathing so they wouldn't breathe on the same side, the same foot plant all the time because he thought it caused imbalances and injuries. But he's always been a bit technical for me. Instead, I like to see how it works in our own practice, yours and mine. So let's start with the mechanical basics to set the baseline and get it out of the way because it's boring. What's going on when you breathe? Well, you've got a set of muscles that expand and contract in your chest and torso. 
This brings air into your lungs and expels it out. In with the good, out with the bad. And in this air, we get our oxygen that our cells need to do miraculous things that they do, like creating energy. Unless, of course, you're in Leadville, in which case there is no oxygen in the air, and you die on the trail, or at least you miss the cutoff. Mechanically, we each have a volume of air that we can pull into our lungs. And as a runner, as you progress from novice to more than novice, you increase the volume of air that you can pull in. The whole system gets very strong. The muscles get stronger and more efficient, and the lungs get huge. In fact, before you became the excellent, much-admired endurance athlete that you are, your lungs were puny, sad little things. And now they are big and strong, like Jack LaLanne or Arnold Schwarzenegger, no one will be kicking sand in the face of your lungs anymore. And that's how it works. You don't need to see any max volume formulae to see how if you have bigger, stronger lungs, you can get more air in and therefore get more power out of your body as it burns all that yummy oxygen. Moving on from the mechanical to the thoughtful. Why is there so little discussion of breathing and running? I mean, in swimming, you talk about breathing all the time. When you're swimming, breath cadence and volume are extremely important. Competitive swimmers actually train themselves to be able to race hard without breathing. It's a deficit training thing. You you don't want to know. When I started training for triathlons, figuring out how to breathe while swimming was crucial to survival. My breathing technique progressed from drowning to a 0-1 cadence, where I swam in circles, to a 2-2, and finally to a 3-3 long stroke cadence that, frankly, is like meditation when I do it right, and alternates sides so I swim in a straight line. My point is, in swimming, breathing is part of the technique, but in running, it's often just an afterthought. Why do we measure heart rate and not breathing? Well, because it's not easy to measure breathing. Any old sports watch will take a stab at reporting heart rate, but you need a special treadmill rig or my friend Arnar's smart garment over at Timewear to get good breathing readouts. If you track heart rate and breathing rate, they mirror each other as proxies for where you are vis-a-vis your aerobic threshold and your effort level. You can use them both as performance predictors and as training prescriptors. It's all interrelated. Your breathing impacts and is impacted by your heart rate and your cadence and your effort. It's all one big ball of physiological performance spaghetti. But practically, what can you, dear accomplished endurance athlete, learn from your breathing? First, just be aware of how your breathing cadence tracks with your effort. Count the number of breaths you take at different effort levels. And you'll find that when you're doing slow aerobic work, your cadence will be maybe a 3-3 or even a 4-4, meaning three footfalls for each breath. As you increase the effort, it will move to a 2-2 and then maybe even a 1-1 or even less than a 1-1. And as you're doing this, play with it. Try different cadences. See what it feels like to run a 3-3 versus a 2-2 versus a 1-1. See how it affects your pace and your perceived effort. Try 
taking in really big lungfuls and holding them for a couple of beats and then letting them out. By learning how your breathing is tied to your cadence and your perceived effort, you can then use breathing as one of the tools to manage different racing and training situations. When I used to do a lot of 1600s, a lot of speed work on the track, I would inevitably get to a point in that third lap where I would be battling the effort. I would be gasping for breath, right? I noticed that I'd be <gasps> gasping for breath and really shallow breathing. And one of the ways I would relax back into the effort was to take a very big inhale through my nose and blow it out hard through my mouth. And if you do that, it'll reset. A couple of those big breaths in, blow them out, will reset your perceived effort. Physically, what this does is to reset your breathing to a deeper diaphragmatic breath where you're getting more air volume and more oxygen. But mentally, it also triggers your mind to stop panicking and relax. And finally, the other thing I would like to connect the dots on is how similar the breathing you're doing on those easy long runs is to the breathing techniques they teach in meditation, transcendental meditation. Meditation uses a focus on the breath to relax your mind and to move it into a different meditative state. <laughs> Due to the curse of Western pragmatism, they can't help but enumerate and define these states into complex taxonomies, but I'm not going to subject you to that. I'm just going to summarize by saying that through these breathing practices, you move into deeper and deeper states of consciousness. And as you move deeper, your thinking mind turns off its noise, time stands still a little bit, and you may even feel a bit of euphoria, like a floating, bodiless state. And I would argue, at least according to my own paltry experience, that this sounds quite like the description of a runner's high. And having experienced both, I think they're very similar. What's the benefit of meditation? Easing anxiety and tension, clearing the mind, enabling the creative mind. And what's the benefit of a good, relaxing, long run in the woods? Easing anxiety and tension, clearing the mind, enabling the creative mind, and perhaps some incidental nipple chafing. And that, my friends, is the conclusion to this story. Running is meditation. And a big part of that is the breathing practice. So your homework is to learn the breathing techniques used in meditation and play with them on your next run. Since we recognize that running is meditation, why not practice it as such and use those tools? And now for today's featured interview. Brian, you're back. When you give us the 200 words or less on who you are and what you do and why we're talking. Yeah, for sure. I, uh, my name is Brian Metzler. I've been a uh, sports journalist for a long time and also have a deep uh, involvement in running. I was a, a good uh, young runner and ran well in high school, and I was a mediocre college runner, and that's okay. I kept the passion of running through my life and um, 
eventually worked my way through things like road races and marathons and then kind of ultra running kind of fell into my lap when I was in, in Boulder here and um, have kind of been involved in a, in a variety of pursuits along that, those lines. A lot of trail races, a lot of ultra races, some Ironman. Especially, I, I started uh, Trail Runner Magazine in 1999 and um, still have a relationship with them. I also worked for Running Times for a long time, which is a great magazine uh, that is no longer with us. Did some, uh, a lot of work for Runner's World and still contribute to Runner's World. And then I was the editor of Competitor Magazine for, for six years. That's changed hands and kind of turned into a, a dot-com um, called Podium Runner. But um, And just been, been involved in a lot of different in, in the running media, but also sports media as well. And certainly along those lines, got uh, quite a fascination with running shoes and testing running shoes and reporting on running shoes and learning about the industry. And that led to me writing this book called Kixology, which uh, came out about a month ago from Bellow Press, the hype, science, culture, and cool of running shoes. And um, it's been a fun uh, kind of last month. I mean, the reaction has been pretty strong. I think um, I didn't write it for the running shoe geek, uh, of which I am one, and there's many out there, but I wrote it really for the for the general runner. I mean, anyone who laces up shoes hopefully has a an interest in running shoes, and um, no matter if you're a first-time runner or a serious marathon or ultra runner, but I've been happily impressed by the reaction I've gotten um, from friends in the industry who have appreciated it, uh, people at running stores who have appreciated it. So I think that's to say there's a good mix of uh, kind of really broad-based, fun storytelling episodes and also kind of nitty-gritty facts and, and kind of insights about the industry. Yeah, this is great. I loved reading this because I like you. So for a couple of reasons, right? One is you've pulled together everything that those of us who have been running for, you know, 30, 40 years – we know, right, because we lived all this stuff. But the other thing, and I think this is the important thing, the nugget is that if you're a runner, you've had love affairs, very intense love affairs with certain shoes. And it's great to see that, right? That's why the industry exists, because people are irrationally passionate about their shoes, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that, I think that, that also, too, is, is why we are so consumed by the changes that are made, the colors in a shoe that comes out, the, the, the kind of the nuances of what's new, kind of the the gossip about what's next. I mean, certainly we, we find that right now with the, all these carbon fiber plated shoes um, that are really making a buzz with faster marathon times. But even even if you pull that back to, if you're a runner and you've run in the Nike Pegasus for a long time and the, and the new version comes out or the new color comes out or the Asics Kayano, same thing. It's like you've run in that shoe, you've had an experience in a relationship with that shoe for a long time and then it changes and you, you want to know what it's all about or you want to get it and test it out or feel it. And, and so it is a, probably more than any other sport I can think of. It's, there's this passionate connection between runner and shoes because you have so many good, hopefully good experiences in those shoes. And uh, whether it's finishing a marathon or a great workout or a great trail run, um, it's the shoes that take you there. And uh, it's kind of a unique piece of what our sport is all about. Yeah, it's an extension of the person and you know, all this stuff plays together. I think you've done a, a good job of capturing that. So anybody who doesn't know the history of shoes can pick it up and use this as sort of a almost a textbook as well. I don't mean to make it sound dry because you're an excellent writer. But going through this and looking at the, for example, I got a pair of Nike Air Max from 1996 that I got in my closet that I'm keeping because those were the shoes that I qualified for my first Boston in, right? And wow, okay, the reason great. I bought uh, the reason I bought those shoes was because they were the most expensive shoes in the store. Right, right. <laughs> that was it, right? No, I get it. I did. I get it. Yeah. I did. And, and, and you talk about this, right, in your book, as how they keep bringing out these innovations and people don't know what's what, so you just sort of default to okay, what is the industry saying? What are people saying? What's the best shoe, right? 
but also the number one question, if you're involved in running, the number one question you're going to get, whether you're a coach or you own a store or you work in the industry or you're just a runner in the club, number one question you're going to get from runners is what shoes should I get, right? Right. And it's almost an unanswerable question unless you go into the kind of background and detail that you've gone into in these 200 pages, right? Well, and even then, it's a, it's a still an unanswerable question because, I mean, what's good for me, what I like is different than what you would like or what's good for you. And, like, there's so many variables that go into it. And, like, I think that it, it is important to go into a specialty run shop and try on a bunch of shoes because I think I think two things have happened. One, you can hopefully work with a, a shoe fitting expert that really knows a lot about the shoes and, and hopefully can understand a little bit of your gait if they see you running on a treadmill or just understand kind of how you run. But I think also, I think there's a big piece there of where your brain can tell you a lot about fit right away. I mean, like there's this weird and amazing connection between your brain and your foot. No different than between your brain and your hands when you're picking something up or carrying something. But uh, with your foot, I think the brain probably knows more than we think in terms of how uh, something is going to interact between your stride and the ground and all this stuff. And I think that uh, that can can go a long way in, in kind of helping you narrow that down. But you don't know that unless you are able to try on and hopefully at least temporarily jog around in, in some several models. And I think that's, that's the key. And I think that happens a lot of times, but I also think that in the Internet age or if someone's going to a general sporting goods store, they're not getting that range of understanding of what shoes are. And I think that certainly I know people buy two clicks. They can buy a pair of shoes that are inexpensive or they look good or it's the right color. But um, those aren't the reasons that uh, are going to make you a more efficient or a more effective runner or a more comfortable runner doing that. But to your point, yeah, it's impossible to answer that question because even the top selling shoe, I mean, if, if, the, if the Brooks Ghost is the top selling shoe right now, it doesn't mean it's going to work for you or for me or for the person next to me. It might work for a lot of people, but that doesn't mean that that's right. the only one to consider. Right. And last year's version might have worked for you, but it doesn't mean this year's version is going to work for you. Right. right so it's, right. it's, it's which, all that which stuff. Is a maddening, yeah, that's, that's a maddening thing because uh, you can run in the same shoe for many years and Maybe the, the brand adjusts it a little bit, and all of a sudden, boom, they change it considerably. And so sometimes those changes are good. The, the new New Balance 1080 V10 has a brand-new knitted upper that's almost like a sock-like fit, and it changes the kind of the feel of that shoe. But to me, it's been a good shoe. It's a good, good update. But, but there's a lot of shoes that will go kind of minor update, minor update, minor, and boom, crazy big update. And then you're like, whoa, it's not even the same shoe. And so I think that part is maddening, and that ties back to what you said earlier about kind of how shoes change and the, the marketing and all stuff of, of shoes is, is such a such a quagmire in what we do on a yearly basis in searching for our shoes. Right. And one of the, the cool nuggets I pulled out of here was that, you just said this, what the best criteria is the comfort, right? Is wearing the shoes and yep. seeing if you like the way they feel. That's the best criteria, yep. right? Uh, and it's yeah. sort of, you can kind of narrow it down, you know, high arch, low arch, wide foot, that kind of stuff. But then it comes down to comfort, and that's the best indicator. Yeah, I agree, and I think that um, you know, there, there have been studies, and you know, there was a, uh, a researcher at the University of Calgary, Ben O'Neig, who is uh, he's now retired, but he was one of the first person scientists to kind of show that. Yeah, comfort has a big deal with kind of how you run in it. And again, it's, it's that magical connection, that proprioceptive kind of understanding between your brain and your foot that maybe we don't understand from a running shoe point of view yet. I, I know that science is catching up to things, but I think I think that's a big thing. And like again, we all run differently. We all experience a different sensation when our feet hit the ground and what we think that should be. And um, that's not to say we're entirely right or entirely wrong, but I think that's a big piece of it for sure. 
Yep. And even if you go in and get uh, advice in a, a specialty shoe store, sometimes you're going to get bad advice because people are trying to categorize you. I'll tell you a story. I remember one time when I went in, I was talked into buying a a pair of Brooks Beast simply because I was close to 200 pounds, but I was a very high volume efficient runner. So those are the wrong shoes for me, right? Absolutely. Um, yep, absolutely. Wrong uh, shoe. Right. They just look and said, you're a big guy. You need these shoes, right? And they were the wrong shoes. And then another time, yep. and this happens to me all the time is because my toes are, I have very long toes. So they'll try to put me into a half size bigger all the time. And that just doesn't, yep. you know, the shoes flop around on me. I would rather do battle with the upper with my toe on one foot, then then have a floppy shoe, right? So it's even, you have to sort of be um, responsible. And a lot of times it's what they have in inventory too. So you have to take all that stuff with a grain of salt. So we're not helping at all because what we're saying is it's really up to you to decide what shoe is going to be the best for you. It's trial and error, right? Which is hard when they're coming up on 200 bucks a piece. Yeah, it's, it's certainly a big piece of it. And like, it's, it's also hard because of all the marketing goes around it. You know, it's like, you know, we're all drawn into back in the day, I described the, the ads and runners world. And, and now it's more on the internet. You see these things and you're caught by the flashy colors and designs and, and this athlete's wearing them and everything else. And that's cool. But again, it comes down to what works for you. And that might be entirely different. I mean, like we know that there's, there's been a lot of um, shoes that uh, are under kind of R and D right now that have been in big marathons and some of them have come out like the four percent and the next percent and the hope of carbon x but again you've got to find out what works for you with your gait style with your foot shape and certainly it is yeah, to your point it is uh, pretty easy to get bad advice and so certainly the runner has to play an active role in understanding kind of what their needs are and also what their what their likes are too i think it's a big it's a big deal yeah, and you went into and looked into all this stuff in your piece here, but the interesting conclusions. So the reason people buy running shoes or try to buy running shoes is, A, to go faster, which we'll come back to, but B, to prevent uh, injuries or fix an injury, right? And the conclusion you came to was that shoes don't cause injuries, but on the other hand, shoes don't solve injuries either. Right. That's exactly true. I think, you know, in talking to you, the sports scientists that, that know running injuries and know gait, um, yeah, it's not, it's not a shoe that's causing something. It is certainly repetitive gait issues, uh, which are based on a lot of other things. I mean, I think uh, one of the sources in there, Jay DeSherry, is a really well-known uh, PT from, from Bend, Oregon, who talks about gait all the time. He, he watches runners. He trains runners. He fixes gates. We all have our own anatomy we're born with. We all have our own anatomy that, that adapts through life. We become stronger on one side, perhaps, or weak, or we have injuries. All those things play into it, and, and certainly that affects kind of how we run. And, and so I think there's so many variables there, but certainly injuries do happen. But whether you're running in this shoe or that shoe probably has much less to do with it than really kind of what your body's all about or where you're weak in your body. It seems like the body can adjust to a lot of things, but certainly there's these inherent weaknesses we, we might have that, you know, I, I made the point that like the average recreational runner, of which I am at this point, um, compared to an elite runner, I'm not doing the same kind of drill work or strength work or con exactly. constant um, effort on that. So I'm, I'm not nearly as strong as I used to be when I was a young track athlete, right? And, and I know that, and I, I can feel my gait can be weak in places, and certainly I, I'm not uh, immune to injuries either. And so if I have an IT band problem or an Achilles problem, it's like, okay, something's Something's going on in my body. It's not the shoes. Or it's, um, I don't think there's any egregious shoes out there that are causing. If I were to try and run in a ski boot, that might cause injuries. But um, a lot of running shoes, aren't, they might inhibit your gait a little bit, but they're not doing that much injury-wise. But I think the, shoe, the, the injuries really come from your own personal anatomy and where you need to be stronger. Right. And just 
to follow on on that. For a recreational runner and you're looking at your, you've only got so much time, it sure is easier to buy a new pair of shoes than to do the 30 minutes worth of drills you're supposed to be doing, right? And even though that (laughs) doesn't solve the problem, it makes you feel better, right? And so the couple of things that you found though in the research, the first one is, which makes me feel good because this is some of the advice I give when people ask me, what kind of shoes should I buy? 85% of the people should probably go into uh, neutral shoes. That's what they're saying now is uh, for at least 85% of the sales are neutral shoes, right? right? So yeah, all that stuff that you say about pronation and medial support and all that stuff was really kind of made up. Well, it wasn't necessarily made up, but it definitely was. is a changing viewpoint of that for sure. And so there's definitely two different schools of thought or at least schools of thought still. I think certainly one of the trends is that, yeah, more people are in neutral shoes more people can handle neutral shoes than previously thought. I think also we, we can all be doing more to do strengthen our bodies and to be doing things. Um, right. A good friend of mine and a source of the book wouldn't believe that. He, he would think that more people need stability shoes. Um, and I quoted him there, Mark Platches, who owns uh, In Motion Running right. in Boulder. He's a what I would consider a shoe whisperer. And he really takes time diligently to, to work with a, an individual to find the right shoes for them and really studies gait and understands how, how bodies move and such. Right. And so, he, would believe he, was, that, he was the guy. You know, he was the guy who said that gait retraining can give you sixty-two percent less injuries. Right. Correct. Yeah, and I think that there are ways to rebuild yourself. I think again, if you, if you look at sports, I mean, if, even on a recreational level, uh, if you're going into golf or you're trying to improve your golf game or tennis, a lot of people take lessons and they they work on uh, their golf swing or their their tennis backhand or all these things. Running is one of the few sports we're never really taught to do anything or, or think we need to do anything at all. I mean, as a kid, if you're playing basketball, you a thousand free throws, right? If you're, if whatever sport you're in, if you're in figure skating, you, you take time to, to learn how to do jumps and turns and all that stuff. But running, we just lace up shoes and we go. And certainly our body is pretty naturally inclined to be able to run. But at the same time, it's our physique that's different. Our physique isn't necessarily built if you're considering 25 to 50-year-olds or higher, 60-year-olds, your body's not necessarily as fit as it once was or as strong as it once was. And so that's where the disconnect is. I mean, like, certainly we could all be more fit. We could all be stronger. We could be all more diligent about training as a runner. Again, we're not doing nearly what uh, the elite runners of what a Shalane Flanagan or a Med Klopuski is doing. One, we don't have the time or the resources. We can't get massage. We can't do all these things. But certainly, that's what running is on a different level, and that's why athletes are so fit and so strong. Right. So the bottom line is, think about looking at your form before you, you know, or at the same time as you're thinking about shoes. Think about your form, because that makes a very big impact in terms of everything, right? In terms of injuries and, and performance and that sort of thing. And there's a lot of people focused on that now. A lot of coaches focus, focused on that now for recreational runners just like you're saying. So the other stories, Bruce, that I really enjoyed because I lived them myself were uh, the Ultra story and the Hoka story, right? So I run in Hoka's. I love Hoka's because I'm an old guy, and I believe they helped me stay injury-free. So I love that brand. But the Ultra's, I didn't like as much because I'm not a zero-drop guy. I need a little bit of heel lift. But I knew Golden, but I never knew about his dad, the previous yeah. history of how he got to where he was. Yeah, that was fun. I, I had known Golden and Brian, like, from about the time I started the company, I happened to be at a trade show and was kind of sniffing around for ideas and stories, and, and I saw this brand, and I had kind of heard about them coming, but I, the first time I saw them was, I think, 2011, and so I got to know those guys pretty well, And uh, but it wasn't really until really getting down to the nitty-gritty of the book that I learned much more about Golden's dad. I mean, I knew you owned a running store, but I knew they tinkered with shoes, but like really getting into all his background about how he was a 
pretty good marathoner later in life. You know, he didn't discover running until his uh, early 30s, and he became a pretty fast marathoner. He won a marathon in Utah, and like, but also I think the biggest thing there is he really took an interest in running shoes and, and running gait and understood how he could run faster. A, a lot of things that um, really went into certainly Golden as a young kid when Golden was working in the store and eventually into the formation of ultra running. And I think those guys and that brand have done a lot of great things to change some of the pre-convention about what running shoes should be. And uh, obviously there's there's different things for different people. And certainly the zero drop, I know, is, is harder for some people to get used to. But it is a very uh, certainly natural platform. Um, and we, we talk about natural platforms when minimalism came out and minimalism went away, but also has never been a minimalist brand. They've been a, a natural running brand. And so, right. you know, there's no right. false, there's no false lift, not a lot of getting in a way. It's just allowing the foot to move naturally. And that, that's been a great thing. And so I think Alter's really done a lot of really amazing things um, in the advancement of shoe design and understanding of injuries too. Yeah. I mean, I've run in them. And like I said, I need a little bit of lift in my heel because I'm so tight, but I love the toe box, right? Let your feet splay and your toes feel yep. the ground, That I love that part of those shoes. And then you go through a little bit of um, how shoes are manufactured. And, and just uh, real quickly, people think these are made by machines maybe, but they aren't, right? Apparel is one of those industries that's sort of resistant to automation. Yep. So at the end of the day, you still got a big room full of people with glue guns and scissors putting these things together. And that's why it's all overseas, because you, you have that labor aid. There's a couple industries that are still, they'll get there, but they're still resistant. And then my final question to you, Brian, since uh, we're coming up on our time here, is so you got to run in the vapor flies and you found that they were magic shoes, like Forrest Gump's magic shoes. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. I think what we've seen now, certainly with Nike in the lead, also obviously Hoka put their, their carbon fiber shoes out. And I know that um, other brands, Saucony and Brooks have been working on on shoes with carbon fiber plates. I think what we've, we've come across is the notion that there is a different way to build a running shoe. Obviously, the really soft foams are soft and cushioning, but they're also soft and resilient, which that's one of the big things. And so Boost Foam was the first foam to have those dual qualities. But in the evolution of that time from 2013 to, to 2017, when the first carbon fiber plate came out, you had then this combination of super soft and resilient foams that kind of allowed the foot to kind of go into this uh, carbon fiber plate, which um, uh, mostly is a lever that really kind of allows you to roll forward uh, with ease and use less muscular strain in your forefoot and really kind of just provide a really efficient platform. And I call it a lever because those shoes, I believe, are levers. I think the question mark is still around the shoe that uh, Elliot Kipchoge wore in his uh, sub-two-hour expedition in Vienna. That was a different shoe that might have actually more spring qualities to it. But that being said, I think we've certainly, as an industry, come across different ways to build shoes, it makes the human movement more efficient. And that's, that's a big thing. I mean, if you look at shoes from the 1950s to the 1990s to the early 2000s, not a lot changed. Um, certainly materials changed. And this is a material change that kind of forced this. But certainly this is different. And um, I, I believe this will be everlasting. And certainly there are probably new ways too, but um, this has been a big kind of um, moment in running. Yeah, I, I got a pair of those Hoka ones the Carbon X uh, ones. I ran one race in them. I ended up crashing out around mile 16. It wasn't the shoe's fault. It was my training. But uh, And that's a, another point, right, is these aren't making you magic runners. They're, if you're well-trained and you show up for your race and you have a decent 
form and a decent training, they're going to help, um, but yep. they're not going to help that much, right? So I, the story I like to tell is when I run marathons, I pass a lot of people walking at the end of the race wearing those $250 Nike Vapor Flies, right? It's yeah, not gonna, that's true. Yeah, so. it's not gonna, it's not going to transform you into a superhero by any means. Um, certainly, your point is correct. There is no magic bullet in running. You have to do the training. You have to be able to endure the changes um, in your mitochondria and your lungs and the ability to process oxygen better. Once you're on that path to processing oxygen better and increasing your endurance, certainly there are changes in these shoes that um, allow you to go one to two to four or six percent faster, maybe. But it also has to do with, again, how strong you are. How, you know, have you done drills? Are you core strong? To allow your legs not to overwork the big muscles. Um, there's all kinds of things. So to your point, yeah, running is always going to be about doing the hard work. And certainly is the original Nike Pegasus from 1982, 83 as good as uh, the carbon fiber plates of today? No, absolutely not. But we do know that there were some fast runners that ran Derek Clayton, I mentioned, ran sub 209 50 years ago almost, and running in, in very minimalist or not well-built shoes. And so it does show that the, it's the, the human effort and human condition that is really always going to be the secret sauce to running, and it's how hard you work and how much training you do. And certainly shoes, though, can play a role and do play a role, but certainly running a marathon or an ultra or even 100 meters is all about, again, how much you're training your body. So are you hearing anything from, like, the international organizations that they're going to come down with some guidelines on this stuff like they did with the speed suits and swimming? Yeah, it'll be interesting. I've heard, I've heard scuttlebutt. I know the IAAF is looking into it. Um, I think there's a couple interesting challenges there. Um, I don't know that it'll come out before 2020 because these products are already in development. I mean, aside from the, the marathon shoes we've seen <clears throat> here, there's also, there was also a lot of unique, perhaps performance enhancing spikes that were in Doha at the world championships uh, a month and a half ago. And so there's a mm. lot of shoes out there that are being tested. I mean, uh, Desi Linden wore a pair of prototype shoes when she won Boston in 2018 in that rainstorm two years ago. And uh, so there's been a lot of shoes already out there. And so I think that the one biggest challenge is, are the shoes readily available? And that's the Nike shoes, except for the Kipchoge shoes, the Nike shoes are readily available, even though they have a high price tag. It's the experimental shoes, I think, that'll become the challenge, because that means that not everyone can use them. And that's where you don't know what the shoe is. I mean, no one really knows what that Kipchoge shoe is, except for some of the documents and photos you've seen on the internet. But so to answer your question, it would be a big game changer to create a limitation on shoes. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I, I think that, yeah, your, the point in swimming was interesting. Um, uh, Formula One racing has certain restrictions. Uh, there's a lot of sports. Yep, that cycling. You can't, you yeah, cycling. Yeah, cycling. Uh, in, in hockey, you can't curve a hockey stick uh, uh, to some degree because you're getting more of an ability to kind of throw a puck through the air. And, and so there's a lot of sports that have regulations. And certainly track and field, anyway, already does. I mean, the, the, the weight of the of the implements they throw, the pole vault poles, there's a lot of regulations already. So uh, is it possible there will be a regulation? I'd say probably. I'm not sure that it'll come before 2020. That's and it. The 2020 Olympics are going to be the uh, remember for shoe doping, Brian. Well, that, that could be. I mean, we know that 2012 in London was known for real doping, so that's unfortunate. But uh, I think there's a lot of issues certainly facing running and track and field that are probably bigger than the shoes, and that's unfortunate as well. But I think if the shoes are readily available, meaning anyone can buy them, then it comes down to really sponsor relationships and other things. And hopefully every, every brand is working on a lot of cool things because I think I wrote a piece for Runner's World about a month ago. I believe that like this is all part of the evolution of sport. I mean, every other sport has improved its gear. We don't see people with wooden hockey sticks anymore. We don't, 
every sport has improved its gear for performance sake, right? And uh, is is there some unknown here? For sure. Um, but at the same time, I think that we're, at this point, we're not putting, hopefully not putting motorized elements in running shoes to change the game. Certainly, there are probably limitations of what we're talking about that would change the game. But for right now, I think that talking about foam and we're talking about a, a firm material, I mean, like, it's not even carbon fiber because Asics is working on a shoe that doesn't have carbon fiber, but has a plate. It's made out of something else, right? So you can't really blame a material. Yeah. It, 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 it's, it's how well the shoe's put together in, in different ways. And so that's why I think that we, we can't just jump to a conclusion and say, oh, this shoe's got to be illegal because it's still foam and plastic and vinyl, whatever the materials are that are on, on an athlete. And I think the, the thing I'll say about Kipchoge is he broke two hours in a simulated marathon that had probably less to do with this shoe and more to do with him his training, his evolution as this great marathoner, which he already proved, and also all the course conditions. I mean, I read a story from the BBC this morning about how they meticulously looked over that course, and in the middle of the night, they, they redid one of the roundabouts um, on the pavement because it was too much of an angle, and they were worried it would be too much of a strain on the, on the, on the runners going around the bend. And so, you know, that was a, that was a special occurrence, but so yeah. was his 201.39 or 201.37 two years ago. So, I think it's less about the shoes still. It's about the athletes and the evolution of the athletes and how we're helping them do greater things. All right, Brian. That's good talk. I, thank you for writing this book. I think it was needed, and it's uh, it's a great read. And it's Kicksology by Brian Metzler and uh, the hype and science and culture and cool of running shoes available at uh, all the all your favorite bookstores, right? Yeah, yeah. Amazon and VeloPress.com. And yeah, but I, I appreciate it very much. It's been a great conversation. It's fun to always kind of needle down with some kind of fun topics that we all love. And uh, certainly running shoes is one of them. So it's good, it's good to chat with you. All right. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it very much. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. On memories and redemption. The Quakers looked to shake off the physical dirt of this world in order to find another, in order to find a true non-physical world beyond our reach and therefore closer to God. I'm helping my daughter with her new house this week, doing a bit of painting and waiting for workmen to show up and do their thing. And today I need to meet the guy who would clean the carpets in the morning. The appointment was at 9 a.m and put a bit of unwanted pressure on my morning routine. I threw Ollie the Collie in the truck and drove over to the next town to be on station at the apportioned time. Squeezed as we were for time, I didn't get a walk for Ollie into the morning agenda. Ollie, being a puppy and a working dog, gets a bit psychotic if he doesn't get enough exercise outside. Actually, for Ollie, there is no such thing as enough outside exercise time, but I do my best. After getting the workman set up to go, I figured I'd take Ollie out for a walk. I, of course, have run the roads around here, as I have run all the roads in this area, and was fairly certain that there was an interesting Shaker village less than a mile away on the adjacent back road, and we set off. We took a curious, leash-tugging circuit around the condo complex looking for maybe a trail to avoid the main road, and we found through a backyard in an active construction zone a way to the next road and began to wander up the shoulder towards the Shaker houses. After two solid days of gray, cold drizzle that would make London or Seattle proud, 
The day had dawned bright and sunny and happy. Temperatures danced with the freezing mark, leaving treacherous black ice in the parking lot. Leaves and fall plantings turned into cathedral paintings by frost and the slanting morning sun. Ollie was wound up. Not enough exercise. He wasn't around when I ran my Tuesday trail run, and you could tell he was a pressure cooker of energy, wound up tighter than a rubber band. We walked and bathed ourselves in this beautiful morning, him tugging me along up the shoulder, about three-quarters of a mile up the road, before we had come to that scenic village. There was a trail opening leading off into the forest, unmarked. And those who know me know I am constitutionally incapable of passing by an unmarked trailhead without exploring. And we descended into the sparkling New England wood, like Thoreau striding into Walden. It soon became apparent that we had discovered a good-sized chunk of conservation land, and I was able to let Ollie off-leash to sprint about the trail, which solved his pent-up wanderlust and hopefully solved my need to sit peacefully without being barked at and or bitten for a couple minutes later in the day. This trail led us through the old Shaker farmland. With the leaves down, we could see the occasional works of man on the land. Long, solidly built stone walls with square-cut granite pillars in the gateways. The occasional cellar hole from a house or a barn or a shed long lost in the mist. As we ambled along on our unplanned reconnaissance, I began to think of the men and women who built these things and tended these farms a hundred years ago before the great pines and oaks reclaimed them. I don't think there are any shakers left. They were a sect that eschewed all things of this realm, including those elements of physical communion necessary to create little shakers, but that holy energy made its mark here in these stones and works. You see, the earth and these rocks are a form of deep memory. As much as the electrons that I am chasing around in this computer to tell you this story, these people told their story by working their memories into this landscape with stone and spade. This granite pillar is more than a boundary marker of a gate or an entrance to a road. It is the physical manifestation of the men and animals that put it here. Their sweat and bloodied knuckles are recorded here. And these thoughts make me think of how I am just a part of one great historical memory. How what I do leaves ripples on the land, echoes. My footfalls in the leaves and broken acorns lay as one more lair in millennia of memory. And in this context, it can make you feel small in your impact when measured against the memory store of eons. But if you squint just right, it can also focus, pull you out of yourself and into the small part that you can affect in this time, your time, in this moment, in this day, you can feel part of something bigger and feel the gratitude of that belonging. And in that same context, as one of the makers of an inherited memory, you can ask yourself a simple question. Are you being a good ancestor? Are you? Okay, 
Now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Well, my friends, you have made it with gratitude to the end of the Run Run Live podcast, episode 4-420 in those brand new running shoes that you are thankful for. Like I said, I'm just doing two to four runs a week right now out in the woods with Ollie, not training for anything specific. I ran the local Thanksgiving 5K with my running club friends yesterday. I had planned to walk it with Teresa, but her foot was still too hurt. Uh, She's in a boot, so she couldn't walk it. So that put me in a bit of a bind because I wasn't planning on running Thursday, and I definitely wasn't planning on racing a 5K on Thursday. And I had run with Ollie in the woods on Monday and, and Wednesday, so the day before. But it worked out okay. I just lined up with, you know, in like the eight-minute mile section, and I sort of eased into it. And I ran pretty easy and got pulled along by the crowd. And I ended up being surprised. I averaged 726s because I wasn't hammering it. I was being chatty with the other runners. And you know what? I'm a new level of annoying when you're running all out and I pull up beside you and start chatting. That's just a new level of annoying. (laughs) Uh, Next up, next weekend, following weekend. Yeah, well, I mean, the weekend after next is the Mill Cities Relay, and I put together a good men's 50-plus team. We're going to have some fun. And then, of course, since I choose to live in a world where you can make up your own marathon and just show up without training much on the last Sunday of December, yep, we'll be holding the 7th edition of the Groton Marathon. I've got a handful of loonies signed up. All are welcome. Like I said earlier, I've been putting in a lot of miles with Ollie. Thursday was a long day for Ollie. We had a lovely long walk in the Shaker Conservation Land in the bright, cold morning, which we talked about a little bit in Section 2. And I was able to let him off leash so that he, he could sprint up and about and through the swampy underbrush. And we were up for almost two hours. And then we worked all day at Katie's new house, painting the walls and ceilings. Ollie's role in this is supervisorial. He tests the quality of the painting by licking the freshly painted walls. He enforces a schedule of mandatory puppy wrestling breaks. In this way, we all stay limber for the work at hand. And later in the day, he and I, we managed to beat the setting sun and get a nice trail run in. We ambled through the soggy leaves for six and a half more miles, and we were pretty tired. I was tired, too. My body was heavy from the unaccustomed time on my feet all day and the strange angles and dangles of honest work. And we stood there steaming in the winter leaves and watching the sun melt into the trees. And I asked Ollie, I said, how are you feeling? Is this too much work for you, too much training? And he turned to me with his sharp brown eyes, considered me for a few long moments, and he responded, No, old one, it is right that we train long, for we must be prepared. The day is coming when we will need to fight, and we will need our aerobic capacity and strength. Really? I said. How so? And he suppressed a small growl, and pawed the soft leaves, and continued. Gray one, The time is coming, soon, when all will be ruined, 
when the last remaining humans will be confined to carpeted cubicles and forced to cuddle, here he seemed to sneer the word, and scratch behind ears and speak baby talk, we must be prepared. We few remaining working dogs and humans for the doodle apocalypse. And with that he trotted off up the trail with a seriousness and purpose no six-month-old dog should be forced to carry. And I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. And that's how it works. You don't need any max volume formulas to see how if... Jesus Christ, that's hard to say. Cut, cut, cut.